you here today. And we're going to continue to our talk on uh, help wanted. How many know that one of the biggest mistakes we can make, especially when it comes to prayer, is we're praying. First thing is we are, we're praying for things that God's already done. Right? God, thank you that you're here today. Well, yeah, duh, he's, he is here, you know. Uh, and then the other thing is, is praying for God to do what we're called to do. And so we have to discern what's my part and what's God's part. One of, uh, I wrote a book a number of years ago called Disturbing the Present. And one of the chapters was uh, when you need to stop praying. Because I felt like a lot of us as Christians, we used prayer as an excuse for not going and not, not stepping out. And so I'm all for prayer, but it's never an excuse to not act. And you'll find times in the scriptures where God says, you need to act right now. And so as your pastor today, I want to get you guys to lean into a little bit of evangelism. Like when we talk about evangelism, that you and I, that is our call. Amen? That's the work of the church. The work of the church is not so that we can have a nice Sunday morning service. Now, not that we don't love the worship and the teaching and all that stuff, but our work is to evangelize and share the good news of Jesus Christ. We're all called to do the work of the evangelist. Don't shout me down now. Come on, right? We need to be doing that work. And oh, I was, uh, I was uh, looking at my phone the other day. Does anybody have a smartphone here? It has all these apps. And I have this one app that I hadn't used for a while. And their marketing department decided that once, uh, once you didn't use their app for a little while, they put a little cobweb over your app to make it look like it was getting old. And so you'd be like, oh, no, I need to use that again. Can I say this, that maybe your evangelism app's got some cobwebs on it? And let's push some of the cobwebs today so that we can actually just remember this is, this is the work of the church. Amen. The work of the body of Christ is not to build the church. Who builds the church? Jesus. That's his job. I was so relieved when I heard that. I said, thank you, Jesus. The work is the harvest. Jesus said the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out the laborers into the harvest. That was the first prayer request. And the only prayer request you'll ever find of Jesus is to pray for us as the laborers. How many know you're laborers? Amen? You're equipped. You have what you need to do what God's called you to do. So let's do it. I want to talk today about Acts chapter 19. And you'll find here that Paul had come to this city called Ephesus. Everybody say Ephesus. And uh, in Ephesus, there was, some, there was some things going on. It was, I, I think Ephesus was kind of like the Hollywood of the, of the land of the, um, the nations back then. It was, it was very immoral. It had um, a lot of money-making temples. And Paul went there, and the first people group he went to was the Jewish people. How many know that there's different ways to evangelize different people? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, when I'm evangelizing, a lot of times, I'm not, if I find somebody who's very intellectual, I'm like, God, you have to give me something supernatural for them. Yeah. You have to give me something, you know, hey, if, you know, when I, I was sitting on the plane one time, and this guy that was 10 times smarter than me was sitting next to me, and he started going into these deep, you know, arguments about the existence of God and who created God. 
I just said, well, hold on a second. I said, so, and I could argue with them, but I was like, eh. I was like, tell me, I, I, I think you had a dream, didn't you? You've had a recurring dream. And he goes, yeah, how'd you know? And I was like, tell me about the dream. And he began to share with me the dream. And I said, yep, that's a God dream. He said, what? What do you mean it's a God dream? And I said, you're running away from some fear, and you continually run from that until you deal with that fear. Um, you're going to continue to be in this state of anxiety and whatnot. And, you know, just looking for those open doors, but there's different ways. We do not evangelize everyone the same way. We never have a cookie-cutter way of evangelizing with people. We always got to follow the Lord, follow the Spirit and how we're ministering to people. And so when Paul went to the, uh, the, the, the town of Ephesus, it says he entered in the synagogue for three months, and he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But it says this, but some of them became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So as we're ministering the word, we should not be shocked that people malign us and stand against us because we're in a spiritual battle. We're in a battle against um, lies where people love darkness and they have come to believe some things that are ungodly. And how many know once someone believes something, it's really hard for them to change. It's really hard for them to let go of something that they have embraced as truth. It's easier to teach somebody something new and they'd be like, oh, I received that. But if they've, already, if they've already believed the truth and for them to change, people can become obstinate and stubborn in their ways, especially if they're making a lot of money by doing the evil things that they're doing. You combine that with the spirit of mammon. Don't expect people just to let go of their ideas. So what does it say? So Paul left them and he took the disciples with them and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Now, let's just stop for a second. He preached for two years, and he says that all Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. That's without social media, without TV, without satellite, without printing presses. Think about how passionate Paul was. And it wasn't just a nice message. It was a message that was accompanied by power and by supernatural acts and works. As a matter of fact, in Acts 9-11, it said that God did extraordinary miracles. Now, I'd be even happy with just some miracles. But he did extraordinary, extraordinary miracles. Amen? We just released extraordinary miracles over your life right now in Jesus' name. We had someone here that came to the Cat Creek uh, meetings. He had just came to Christ. He was a ghost hunter involved in witchcraft. And he was, I heard about his testimony on Friday night. He said since he came to Christ two months ago, he had no teeth, and he's starting to grow teeth. I don't know how that happens. All right? But he, he, he's got two teeth so far. And... That's extraordinary, isn't it? <laughs> and so God is doing some extraordinary things. And it said that so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that touched Paul were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. So this is how the gospel was being shared at that time. 
So if you think it's kind of weird because, you know, Joe Preacher Ripoff on TV is saying, buy this prayer cloth and it'll bring a healing, it's actually biblical. The devil only counterfeits what's real. There's no counterfeit $3 bills. So because I see a counterfeit, it convinces me there must be a real. That must be real. If there's counterfeit, uh, if, if there's something counterfeit, we know it's real, it's authentic. And so Paul was doing, doing these extraordinary miracles. And what I want to talk about today is how for you and I, we never want to get caught up in just controversies. Like the early church, later on, they got caught up in theological controversies instead of doing the work that God had called them to do. Now, as, a, as your pastor, I love the study of the Word. I love Greek and Hebrew, and I study all this, you know, ancient history stuff. I love that. But that doesn't excuse me from doing the work of the Lord. I have to be working and operating in signs, wonders, and miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, and preaching the gospel. This is what all of us need to be doing. This is our, our work. There's a great book called Soul Winners, and it says this, following the death of the first apostles, theological controversy finally extinguished the Christian's compassion for the unconverted and apostasy resulted. And by the fourth century, the dark ages had begun, and it was not until the 18th century that evangelism began to reappear. So we're looking at almost 1,200, 1,300 years where the passion for evangelism died out because the church got caught up in theological controversies. We can never miss our true call to go to the harvest, have compassion for those who've not heard the message, and make that a priority. How can I be the best soul winner that I can be? Lord, use me to bring the good news to the people around me. And so this morning, uh, if you want to fill in, if you have a worksheet, I want to start up. It says trust in science, like you know, Bishop Fauci has said, and he is science. Apparently, he said that. But um, I want to talk about trust in conscience and recognizing that this is something that I want to tap into today is your conscience. I believe that the conscience is one of the least talked about tools that you and I have that we need to take a priority and remember. Interestingly enough, in 1 Timothy, it says this. Paul's writing, and he says uh, to Timothy, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that you may by them wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. Now, if look at those last four words. Holding faith, five words, and a good conscience. We have the faith movement. We're teaching a faith class. But we're lacking a conscience movement. And this is where the church has not done a good job about training people how to develop your conscience. We live in a society right now that is governed by their feelings. That's a big problem. We don't recognize that our feelings are not a good litmus test to base on truth. How many have experienced the spirit of stupid before? Right? And it felt like the right thing. It felt, I just felt right. I just, I just felt, and people even justify, I felt like it was God. God told me. And 
Well, they say that, that you know, especially when it comes to love, <laughs> first love. It says love, love, if they say love is blind, that's not true. It's deaf, dumb, and stupid as well. So, but people may never see God if they don't see him in action through Christian believers like you and me. If we spend our time debating theology and use that as, as an excuse to not reach the lost, we have disappointed the Lord's heart. We have failed to honor his prayer request. But for you and I, it's about learning that we have to have a holy conviction when it comes to ministering to people. And this is something that I want to encourage you to do is you begin to meditate on your call to evangelize. Meditate on the state of the lost. Meditate that hell is a place where people will go who do not make Jesus Christ the Lord of their life. This is not something that we should ever back down from. The call to go, the call to stand in truth, and the call to call others to come to Christ. Paul says to Timothy, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. So I'm teaching you this morning. You get knowledge. Yes, this is my call. I need to evangelize. But how many know that 18-inch journey from your head to your heart is the longest 18 inches on the planet because you have the knowledge, right? But the conviction needs to come. That's where we invite the Lord. I love when the Lord convicts me of something. When I'm convicted by the Lord about doing something, it feels good. When the devil condemns me, it feels bad. But when God convicts me and calls me up to a higher level and challenges me, like, you need to be sharing your faith. You need to be speaking out. You need to be praying for your waitress. When someone walks by who's sick, you need to offer healing for them, offer a prayer of healing. And this is something that we're called to do. And I think oftentimes we don't do it because we feel unqualified. We feel like, well, my life's not perfect. Friend, God doesn't use perfect people, okay? The last perfect person to walk this planet was crucified for you. And the reason he was crucified to tell you that God, that was the only perfect person God ever used was Jesus. And he died so that we could step into that place of sharing the gospel, ministering to the gospel, whether you're doing it online, at work, at your schools, you're buying tracts. Does anybody here come to Christ because someone gave him a gospel track? Anybody? I have a good friend of mine. He came to Christ because someone gave him a gospel track. Someone saw a YouTube video, came to Christ. Someone looked at a picture, and, and their, a picture transformed their spirit because Someone spent the time to make something beautiful. And sometimes God will use some crazy things. Sometimes God will stir up some stuff, even in the world, that we need to recognize this is something we need to pursue. <laughs> and I love the story because as we've been in Acts 19, it goes, the next verse it talks about, it says, Then some itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. So here's Paul. He's in Ephesus. Everybody hears about the word of the Lord. Everybody hears about what's going on. And then these Jewish exorcists, seven sons of Sceva, decide that they're going to come, and they're going to come to Ephesus, and they're going to start casting out some demons. 
Now, how many know that when you're, when you're an itinerant exorcist, they must have been seeing some results in other places. They're stepping out trying to get people free from demons. And so this story is, is very odd. And when we hear about this story, we think, here's seven men. They're on a traveling ministry, casting out demons. These men were the sons of a Jewish high priest and must have had a level of success in the area of deliverance. How many would agree to that? They wouldn't be traveling and doing what they're doing unless they're seeing demons come out. How are they doing it? It's, they're doing it somehow. It's working. Now, it's interesting because the name Sceva in the Greek means to be prepared. And how many know oftentimes your name, you'll either live up to your name or you'll do the exact opposite of your name? Like the person whose name is Joy. Hey, Joy, you know your name means joy and happiness. You're like, really? You can see the enemy came against them to live up to their name. And so the sons of Sceva, instead of being prepared, they were actually unprepared. And we need to be prepared. I believe this is the message. We need to prepare ourselves. And so this name, to be prepared, to make ready beforehand for a specific purpose as for an event or occasion. But interestingly, the sons of Sceva lacked preparation that led to their demise. So you and I, we have to prepare ourselves. And how do we do that? How do we walk in the authority that we're called to walk into? We see, number one, that these Jewish high priests, these uh, sons of Sceva, they went and they said to the evil spirits, I adjure you by the, by, the, by the Jesus who Paul proclaims. And it says the seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. How many know that was not a good deliverance experience for them? <laughs> but what happens after this is what's amazing. Is that because this happened, the Bible says that suddenly revival hit Ephesus. Revival didn't hit Ephesus because of Paul's, necessarily because Paul was laying the groundwork but because of this event, the ball started to get rolling. And we'll read this in a few moments. But for you and I, we have to remember that our, our country is losing its conscience. It's not afraid of God. There's no fear of God. And so when people are believing lies and are coming into agreement with those lies, there is this resistance to truth that's happening. And you and I have to address those things, even if it causes people to reject us, uh, to, to laugh at us, to mock us. And it's not probably going to get easier before it gets, it's going to get harder before it gets easier. So we have to be ready. And we have to be okay with people disagreeing with us. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5.11. He says, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But we are, but what we are is known to God and hope that is known also to your conscience. That what we have happened every day, we want to spend time in God's word. 
Every day, we want to form our, we have, you and I have the responsibility to form our own conscience. When we're feeding ourselves God's word, God's truth, when we're around other people, we have to be aware. Bad company corrupts good character. We are forming convictions. The conscience is what helps us say no to what we should say no to and yes to what we should say yes to. How many have ever gone on a diet before and failed? But how many know that oftentimes one of the things I like to do is read a good book on dieting and what this nasty food I'm putting into my body is doing to my body? It brings a conviction over me that the next time I see that Twinkie, I'm like, I'm not putting you into my body. I know what you do. You're wicked and evil. So there's something about reading and putting the knowledge inside of us that helps bring a conviction to do what's right. And so there are times when we need to, we need to cut off some relationships. We need to cut off some news sources. We need to cut off some things, our forms of entertainment, because it's affecting our conscience. And so we have to be well aware that we are the ones who build our conscience. There's a statement that I want to make I thought was really good. For, for centuries, the topic of the conscience was preached from the pulpits of America. But this topic has been lost to this generation, leaving many Christians unaware of the powerful tool God has given us for success. Remember, we're, t- we're called to hold on to faith, but also good conscience. And your conscience is what tells you right from wrong. But some people's consciences have been seared. And so they're fully convinced that they're right in something when they're not. And that can happen to any of us. As a pastor, let me encourage you. It's not healthy to tell people, God told me. Never never helpful. When I have a prophetic word for somebody, I say, Deb, I sense this is the Lord. Because it shows, because God speaks oftentimes through my spirit, but how many know your pastor gets it wrong sometimes? And when we go around telling people, God told me, what that does is it makes people like, "Uh uh-oh, do I have to obey? Do this. Just say, I sense this is what the Lord is saying. Does that make sense? And so for us, it helps us communicate truth to people without making them feel I got to do this, or this has to be God. How many have gotten a bad prophetic word before besides me? All right? It's okay. We, you have to, when someone gives you a bad prophetic word, you say, hey, thanks for trying, or I'll, I'll take that before the Lord. But if a prophetic word doesn't resonate with you, then you reject it. Or you put it on the back burner. So, Lord, maybe this is for another time or another place. So, The conscience is not the final ethical authority for human conduct because the conscience is capable of change. Our conscience is often formed from the church that we're brought up in, um, from our parents' morals. You know, some, some churches are against dancing. Some churches are against wearing jeans. Some churches are against a lot of things. Women in leadership, women preaching. There are some churches are against that. And so when they see, for instance, they see a woman preaching because they've been told by an authority this is wrong, it feels wrong to them, even though biblically I disagree. 
It doesn't feel wrong to me. It feels right to me. But we have to measure right and wrong, not based on what we feel, but what God's Word says. That's what I love about God's Word. It is our ground wire. It keeps us grounded. You want to be powerful? Get grounded in God's Word. Amen? So when we talk about the conscience, we have to be aware that the conscience is something that each of us carry that needs to be developed. Number two, we have to be aware that when we present the gospel, are we presenting it in shame or are we presenting it in glory? Shame is a motivator. Shame is a feeling of worthlessness that people feel. And if you've been raised in a church that used shame to, to get you to feel so bad about yourself that you came to Jesus, can I tell you, that's not the best tool. It's not the best tool to bring people to Christ. The best tool is to realize that what Jesus did on the cross for you was to show you your worth, not how filthy and terrible and rotten you are. Most people already feel that. So when we talk about the difference between shame and glory, I believe one of the main reasons people don't come to Christ is because they don't feel worthy to receive what Jesus has done for them. So our job is to say, you, what Jesus did on the cross was actually to deposit in you that sense of, I have worth to be saved. Let me give you this scenario. The way God set up the universe, he could have set up the universe where the only thing we had to do is say, God, forgive me, and he would have forgiven us. But what he did is he chose that he would send his own son to die for us on the cross, and through his act through his work, that we're forgiven. God cho chose to do that. But could he have chosen a different way for us to be forgiven? He could have. So if he could have chosen a different way, for instance, when I do something uh, wrong in my household and I want my wife to forgive me, she doesn't require me to go out and kill the neighbor's cat or kill a bug or something to get atonement, right? There's no bloodshed that in our relationship, she just says, I forgive you. And I'm like, oh, thank you, honey. Why did God choose to develop this plan where Jesus would have to die on the cross, hang there, and suffer like he did? Why? Because the cross is about showing us our worth to God, not how bad our sin is. If you've been raised in, like I was raised in the, in the Catholic church, and I always felt like you walk into the church, you just feel bad. You feel bad. Look what I did to Jesus. And instead of going, no, look what God did for me on that cross by sending his son, Jesus Christ. So it's kind of a picture. We have to look at this picture that in Jewish weddings, what would happen is there would be a price that would be paid for the betrothed, for the, for the one that was engaged. So if a, bride or a, a bridegroom or a man was interested in a woman... He would come to the father, and he would actually pay a price for his bride. But they wouldn't consummate the marriage at that time. It would be like an engagement, but they would actually be called married. So Joseph was married to Mary when Mary was impregnated with Jesus. But they were in the betrothal period. They had never consummated the marriage at that point. That's why Mary was a virgin. So 
in ancient times, the man would come and he would pay a price. Everybody say price. He would pay a price for his bride. And then he would go away and he would build a house or add on to his father's tent or whatever he would do. And once that place was ready for his bride, then the father, his father would approve it and then the man would come back and get his bride, bring her back, have a celebration. That's why they, they had nighttime celebrations and they would be surprised as no one planned the wedding. Once the house was done, you just went and did the wedding. That'd be an interesting wedding. So there was a price that was paid. What does Corinthians say? 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. Jesus saw you and said, I want to marry you. He comes to earth. He pays the price for you. The bridal price pays, pays it for you. You're now married to Jesus. You're betrothed to him. He's gone away again, hasn't he? And he's building a room for you, John 14. But no one knows the day or the hour when he will return. Only the father knows. And so when the father says, okay, son, time to get your bride, he's coming back for the bride he already purchased. That's you. So when Jesus went to the cross, it was the bridal price he paid for you. And I have worth right now. Can I share this with you? I don't know if this allegory works, but you know what? I got the microphone. So here we go. People, when we've gone to church all our lives, we feel like we murdered Jesus because of our sin. You murderer. You murdered Jesus. You should feel like terrible for what you did. So, you know, it's like the Lifetime channel, right? If your wife's watching the Lifetime channel, they're, they're you know, they're, they're, this, they're, they're murdering their husbands, murdering their wives on the Lifetime channel, you know? And that's kind of scary. And um, we look at the Bible, we, what it says, it says many, many are living as Christians like an ex-wife accused of murdering her husband instead of a bride getting ready for a wedding. I don't know if that works or not. But we shouldn't, God doesn't want us walking around feeling like we're bad. We have been bought with the price. And so you and I can walk with authority and power knowing we're married to Jesus. The price has been paid. And that's what the cross was. So when we look to the cross, you know, we change the words of that song, Here I Am, the Worship, when it says, and, you know, I never knew how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. Like, good line, biblical, that's great. But then we added it. We didn't change it. We added it to it. But now I know my worth to God. I see Jesus upon that cross. That's your worth. So when you and I go, when we go out, we're not in fear. We're not ashamed. But we're going out as a bride getting ready for a wedding. That the purchased price for our Salvation has been paid. And for you and I, it's a choice that we make. The last thing I want you to fill in, are we an aroma or are we a stench? 
For some people, you may seem like an aroma when you share the gospel with them. For other people, they might think you're a stench. That's, that's rough sometimes. And so we are rejected. We have to deal with rejection because we share. But let me share this. This is a statement. It says, let the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves at the crossroads so that so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in three different languages. Jesus wasn't crucified in some church service. He was crucified publicly where people could see. As a matter of fact, they had to write his, the declaration on the cross in three different languages. So that's where we should go, into the marketplaces, into the communities, into the schools to share the good news of Jesus. And Paul says this in 2 Corinthians for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are more the smell of death to them. But for some, we're the aroma of life. But we have to release the good news. We have to release that aroma. And that comes when we're speaking out, when we're sharing the gospel. Hebrews says this. It says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So Jesus himself, he finished the work that he needed to do for you and I. And now it's our turn. We are the ones who need to finish the race. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father. He sat down because there was nothing more for him to do. Now it's our turn to do our part. And that is to bring the message of the gospel to our neighbors, to our friends, and to our families. Let's stand together. Come on, let's give God a shout of praise. He is good. And be aware, like you and I, God wants to speak through us. He speaks through our voice. He walks in our shoes. He touches with our hands. He listens with our ears. And he embraces with our arms of love. We are the body of Christ, you and I. We know our position. We know what we've been given. And the good news of the gospel, it's a gift. It's a free gift that God gives to anyone who receives. And this is why it's so important we understand what Romans chapter 10 says, that if we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and we believe that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So salvation is a belief and it's a confession. You, you are not a Christian because you attended church today. You're not a Christian because you read your Bible. <laughs> You're not a Christian because you were baptized or you said grace before your meal. You're a Christian when you, by faith, freely receive what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross 2,000 years ago. And you believe it and you confess it. That's why the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord is so powerful. And when you're living life this week, 
Many people are, are, are striving. They think, I'm not good enough. I'm not able because of my past. Friend, don't ever discount what Jesus Christ did for you on the cross 2,000 years ago. Don't ever discount what he did. His blood is powerful enough to forgive every sin ever committed. But we access that blood, we access that salvation through our confession and through our belief. You're going to find so many people out in the world, I just don't feel good enough. Or I feel like I, I have to try harder. Friend, we have to proclaim that it's only by faith, through grace, that man can be saved. And we rest in that. We rest in what Jesus has done. manager of Gateway Hunger Relief Center and uh, I've been about here about 14 years. This has been a blessing to me and my family to be able to serve. We need your support and the reason why we need your support is because our numbers are growing for one thing. The need is great here in Richmond. We're able to provide fresh produce and sometimes milk and just meats and everything like that and your donations really mean a lot to keep this program going. Uh, we also serve the seniors and we also make kiddo bags so every child gets a bag to take home that's got mac and cheese and drink and little snacks in there for them. And we just love being able to pass these things out and bless families. And if you love seeing your seeing families get blessed in Richmond, come donate to Gateway Hunger Relief Center. Hi, my name is J.D. Marker. Hi, my name is Jenny. I just love blessing the people and seeing all the smiling faces and smiling kids. I come, love coming here. It gives me something to do every day. I like to give the people God in their hearts and I like to spread the word of God around to everybody. It's been a blessing. I've been here for 14 years and I hope to do it for another 14. I don't know what I'd do without him really. I'd be home doing nothing. I just love being here and helping people. I like to give out food and help people. God bless everybody. 